I was reading this article from the Puritan minister William Reiner. He once delivered a sermon entitled Babylon's Running Earthquake and the Restoration of Zion. He preached in England before the House of Commons at Westminster. It was a quite solemn national occasion. The sermon was on Revelation 18, verse 21. And the point that he shared right in front of heads of state for the nation is how God can shake nations to actually correct scandals happening in the church. So you look at uh, England in uh, August 28, 1644, where this sermon was given, was having a public fast, a national fast. There was a civil war going on, the height of a struggle for the Reformation for Puritanism and in England. And in such circumstances, he, he said this, and I quote, The impediment to the church's restoration is taken away by great earthquakes. Such impediment is error, heresy, false worship, idolatry. You cannot preach nor pray them down directly and immediately. Yet God appears terrible when he comes out of his holy place. That which the word cannot do, this word shall that which the water cannot wash out, the fire will burn out. Yet once more, he continues, I shake not earth only, but also heaven. A war, an earthquake, or a pandemic, that's how he called it, was appointed in England to shake down the ceremonial ordinances and the false worship. And it was necessary for the abolition of that false worship. To God's infinite displeasure and dishonor, may be tumbled down with violence and vengeance. The Ethanish idolatry fell with such a terrible earthquake as shook down both it and all its supporters, both emperors and empire. Even so, shall anti-Christian idolatry and heresy with Babylon their mother be thrown like a milestone into the bottom of the sea. That was uh, the point of this Mr. Reiner's sermon was clear. God sometimes shakes and destroys nations as a judgment for their false worship. Especially if, uh, like in the case of our text, the nation claims to be worshipped as one nation under God, the true God of Israel, the Bible. And Jeremiah now, or Mr. Rainer back then in England, is one of those people, men of God, called to share such harsh message of warning for a coming judgment to the southern kingdom of Judah. And that is, is in our similar version of the prophet's call that we want to see tonight in Jeremiah chapter 1. We continue our journey through the uh, major prophets, uh, collected uh, sermons on the major prophets and on this theme of judgment and restoration. And we turn tonight to the book of Jeremiah, which is my favorite prophet. It's the longest prophetic book, by the way, and also the longest, though far from easy, prophetic ministry in the Bible. Jeremiah ministered between 627 B.C. to 582 B.C. These are 45 years of ministry. However, he ministers during very difficult and depressing times. If you read the book of Jeremiah, it's quite dark. Jeremiah, his name means Yahweh establishes. He's a prophet of sin and punishment. And this theme of repentance is crucial to Jeremiah. 111 times the book uses the word repent. It is a painful thing that needs to happen, repentance. Painful at first, but widespread change must happen if the nation 
wants to be saved. Otherwise, judgment will come down. And so this book of Jeremiah is a strong stern and a warning to the southern kingdom of Judah. This is the only remaining part of Israel that has not yet been exiled by Assyria. And they must turn from idolatry, from their sin, or they will face a catastrophic exile like the northern tribes. And judgment here doesn't simply mean the loss in battle. It means the end of the entire nation if they don't repent. Now, knowing the story as we looked last uh, evening service, Judah, the, kingdom of, the southern kingdom, refuses to repent. And in fact, they start to persecute Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Because of his suffering. But also lamenting. He has written the book of lamentation. Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. Something that he doesn't delight in. And he grieves over. God will send. Through Jeremiah however. This warning before all that takes place. That Babylon will invade Judah. If Israel doesn't repent. And at this point in history. Israel is caught between superpowers. Between Babylon on one side. And Egypt of the next. However, they have, the, the kingdom has deteriorated morally and in power because they have forsaken the Lord. So that the first uh, exile come, the, there's two waves of exile. In 597, there's the first deportation. And then you have the siege of Jerusalem and the final collapse of the holy city with the destruction of the temple, which happened in 587 BC. That brings Israel to captivity. And now we begin this first chapter. First chapter that recalls the, the call of the prophet and the commission from the Lord. Introducing the whole prophecy of Jeremiah. That like in Isaiah 1 that we saw last evening service, we, have, we already have the main themes and motif of the book. This uh, sin of idolatry, which we'll expand more next evening service. But Jeremiah's ministry, it's his calling and ultimately the, the threat of this Babylonian invasion. And in the midst of this ministry, which will be a very hard ministry for Jeremiah, the calling of Jeremiah of chapter 1 is the anchor to which the depressed prophet often has to look back to find motivation amidst the hardship that he will face. That despite being rejected by almost everyone, that is the sad destiny of this prophet, Jeremiah remains faithful as a faithful preacher of God's word. And so chapter 1 through 6 records the first prophecies that he was to declare to the southern kingdom of Judah. The focus is the guilt and punishment that comes out of guilt. We're still early, however, under the King Josiah. Uh, you, you, you see in verse 1, uh, in Jehoiakim, those are actually better kings. And thanks to Josiah's reform, Jeremiah doesn't yet face what he will face later with full-scale persecution. And our story starts here with God. That God is in search of messengers like Jeremiah. God is looking for a man that no matter their age, no matter the opposition they might face, Jeremiah must fearlessly declare this coming judgment. And otherwise the unrepented nation will collapse. What is the mission of Jeremiah? Let's look at some of the first verses. First of all, the, the span of the mission of Jeremiah is listed there in verses 1 to 3. This is kind of a title of the entire book, Jeremiah. Uh, we have some of his background. He came from a religious family, from the village of Anathoth, which is only two miles northeast of Jerusalem. There is a small town in the small tribe of Benjamin. He's, he's the son of a priest, which means he has direct access to the temple every morning. 
But also family members of Jeremiah will not be so happy with him becoming a prophet. I mean, his future, you get to Jeremiah chapter 7, he will do a, a sermon in the temple condemning the scene right inside the temple. Jeremiah also ministers between Josiah, the last good king of Israel, all the way to exile, Zedekiah, and the uh, exile. So from this first biographical information of Jeremiah, we see that like us, Jeremiah lived in a phase of a declining of an entire civilization. He saw the whole decline of the kingdom. A nation turning from prosperity under a faithful king all the way to destruction and the end of the kingdom of Judah. He was the son of a priest, which means he had to witness a nation gradually moving away from God into oblivion. And we got much to learn from him in our day and age. The concerns and message of Jeremiah is appropriate for today's crisis. Because we live in a world under God's judgment. So let's look now at the circumstances of his call to mission. Particularly, I want to focus on the felt inadequacy that Jeremiah has as God calls him to proclaim destruction. Verse 4 here, here's where Jeremiah received his first word from the Lord. And verse 5 records for us the threefold calling that Jeremiah receives when he's, he was still young. And God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now why is that? Sometimes we meet a person once and we feel like we know them since forever. And here he, he we have a meeting with our Creator who indeed has a perfect knowledge of all of our lives. And God is speaking here saying, Before I knew you, Jeremiah, before I formed you, I knew you. God is looking as, as if the entire events of the life of Jeremiah had already happened, which was indeed a comfort. If you look at the life of Jeremiah later in the turmoil that he will have to face, God knew it all along. He, he doesn't just knew Jeremiah, but in light of the context here, he is calling him, he has chosen him. Jeremiah has been selected with special favor by God, both in election, but also for mission. Jeremiah and every person on earth is foreknown by God, even before birth. That's what we gather here. The long before that day when he was now called to ministry, even before his birth, God knew him. This is how our text is, is describing this one wonderful, intimate way that God has knowledge of all things. We see here our, indeed, God has ownership and dominion over our lives. And we don't have that dominion over our lives. I'm sure Jeremiah, in his fresh youth, had a, had a nice plan for his life. Perhaps he wanted to become a priest in the temple like his dad. Perhaps he wanted to have a nice position of influence, a nice family. Instead, God calls him to seek no wife, not to seek great things for himself, but to announce doom, to see absolutely zero converts under his ministry, to experience persecution and witness the total collapse of Jerusalem. This is a depressing life ahead for, for the weeping prophet. And so this text is particularly important to, to us uh, to keep in the forefront. Whenever we consider the, 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 the calling of God for our life, it can become a daunting a discouraging thing. The key here is how our callings, whether ministry, motherhood, or any other calling in this life, it needs to be rooted in the unshakable purposes of God. Before I form you, I knew you. 
that is not the changeable and, and at times disheartening circumstances around us that determine our calling. And this extends beyond the, the call to be a prophet like in Jeremiah. Whether we want to ascertain and fulfill God's specific calling to our lives. There, there is a sense, remember, for us under the new covenant which all believers are to act as priests, as prophets. Every Christian is called in some serve to serve Christ. And in our specific callings, God knows us. He consecrates us. He forms in the womb and appoints us to those specific callings. Just as Jeremiah was born to be a prophet, to be chosen vessel and instrument for God, he has a plan for all of our lives too. And like Jeremiah, it includes, however, crosses. It is a wonderful plan indeed, but it's including crosses, setbacks, discouragement. We're just called to get caught, however, in this vortex of the will of God for our lives. And we have behind these words, before I form you, I knew you. Also the profound truth of this doctrine. What the Bible calls predestination. Okay, That God determines sovereignly and foreknows as it pertains particularly our salvation. God from all eternity chose specific people, specific individuals to bring them into eternal communion with himself. That the entirety of God's plan over our life is in these words. Before I, I formed you, I knew you. So maybe this is a comfort to you and I. See, predestination is not a comfort when all is nice and well. But when, when the whole world is shaken like it will be for Jeremiah in coming chapters. When like Jeremiah, everything and everyone comes attacking you and threatens to shake you at the core of your identity. When you feel like a failure. Think of it, no one repented under Jeremiah's preaching. And I'm sure that all of our callings at time face a point of crisis. But the encouragement comes when you look back, when God comes to that point of crisis and God first calls you e either to salvation either to a specific relationship a marriage or a job or a ministry and you remember the faithfulness of God in the past and like Jeremiah now you have you have been faithful to your heavenly call and that's all that matters in reality the the fruit of Jeremiah for future generation I want to say is something that he he was unaware until the end but it was still true think about how many people benefited from his word written in the Bible? That was the calling. But let's also ponder these words. Before I form you in the womb, in a sense, we see here also another aspect. The immense value of human life before I form you in the womb. The womb is the place where a person is already known by God. And even before, even before conception, think about it. If this is so then, Suicide, abortion, other murderous affront to human life are to be considered in their true light as the greatest human reprisal. It is an open affront to God. We live in a culture, friends, of death. I mean, abortions in this country from when it was legalized in 1973 have reached 900,000 deaths each year. Can you, can you imagine? 900,000 babies. We just updated our, our church website under the section beliefs. There's a, now a statement on the sanctity of human life. That we must take, when you take the human life of any form, is a creature's attempt, according to our text, to place himself in the place of God. Abortion is murder. 
And we need to call it for what it is. According to our text, it is an affront from the creature to toward God's place who knows them all from before he formed them in the womb. And we kill them. And that is the tragedy and the judgment of our nation. But let's go back to our story. Before Jeremiah was ever born, God has also, our text continues, sanctified or ordained or consecrated Jeremiah. God causes Jeremiah to be set apart for a specific task. And thirdly, he has appointed or ordained him as a prophet to the nation. That is an interesting qualifier, to the nations, not just Israel. Jeremiah must speak God's word and some of his prophecies go even beyond Israel. There's direct prophecies and to the nations because you see that the nations too, not just Israel, will be held responsible to repent from their wickedness and idolatry. But what's, what's the response of the prophet? Let's look at the response of the prophet in verse 6. And there you see that he doesn't have such an eager response. And that is not new in the Bible. Here's the response. Ah, behold, alas, please. Sometimes you hear stories of people declining a commission at work because they feel this unqualified. And that is, that is the first answer of Jeremiah. But even in our world, this is considered insubordination. So how much more with God, the God of heaven and earth. This commission is obviously no good news for the, the prophets. Jeremiah has this hesitant reaction that reminds us of Moses. If you go to Exodus chapter 4, verse 10 to 12, Moses shrank from his own call, and the excuse, both in the case of Moses and in the case of Jeremiah here, is slowness of speech. I cannot speak, says Jeremiah. At least not as fluently for such task. And here he adds, I am only a child or a youth. Now it's unclear how old Jeremiah was when this call was issued. Likely when he was 20 years old. The point is he was young enough to feel unqualified for this task. And in Hebrew, actually, this word stands for inexperience. It's almost as if Jeremiah is saying, look at me, Lord. I'm only a boy. I don't know anything. But God, you see, appointed Jeremiah even before he was a youth. Even before he was in the womb. And so, we definitely can relate to the reluctance and the shock, the sense of inadequacy, the callow, inept and stuttered attitude of Jeremiah. I mean, talking about ministry, ministry is not easy. To the point that Martin Luther said once, if I were to cho choose my calling, I will dig with my hands rather than being a minister. And uh, this extends beyond ministry to whenever God calls us to a task that seems too high and too difficult for us. And our reaction to God telling us, I know you, is, look, I don't even know myself. Go and find somebody else. I cannot do this. Send someone else. I mean, what about all the wise men in the temple? Couldn't they go? The mighty, the rich, and the older. God chooses Jeremiah. Who am I? Friends, that's where our inexperience, our inadequacy becomes the occasion for God to enable and empower us. That His power is perfected through your weakness. Also part of the problem here is that such call to be a prophet to the nation is intimidating. To go and share God's word to the nations. And Jeremiah loves his people, the people of Israel. But he knows that this is a prophecy of their annihilation, essentially. And... Things are not going to be easy. Yet if God commands 
us to do something, all human excuses and many more must be rejected. You see, we as Christians are called to witness the truth of the gospel. Even when it's unpleasant, even when it is rejected, as wide as the nations, unless we want to be bearing in our conscience the weight of all the unrepented sinners who receive no warning from the watchman, the person who is supposed to tell them, unless we want to be found in the company in the New Testament of the worthless servant. He buried the only talent he had because he was afraid of the master. He was afraid of the risk. You see, age, inexperience might be priority, but God here accomplishes his divine purpose regardless of these weaknesses. So let this be a lesson to you. And look at verse 7. The Lord's answer is, uh, is emblematic here. Obviously, God disagrees. He has chosen Jeremiah. He considers the excuses something now to be set aside, and he commands Jeremiah to go and to speak whatever God commands. As a symbol of God's commissioning, the, the Lord touches the mouth of Jeremiah. That these words that Jeremiah will be declared will not be his word, but God's words, divine words. And verse 10 continues, I set and appointed you as a prophet to the nations and to kingdoms. That God's words will destroy and restore nations through Jeremiah. And uh, to, to symbolize this, there are three images in our text. The first is the image of gardening in verse 10. Uh, Jeremiah is to root out and pull down. And then to build the, 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 the image of building, to destroy, to throw down. Back when I was in Italy, we had to restore uh, old grandpa's vineyards that have been abandoned for 20 years. Now, before you can plant or even harvest anything, you have to cut. You have to uh, uproot, prune all the branches as the plants and the thorns that for years of neglect have been left there. So it is here, before God can build, he has to destroy. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, the prophet is compared to fire and the people of Israel to wood. And in chapter 23 of Jeremiah, verses 1, Jeremiah's word will be like a hammer that smashes the hard, stony heart of the Israelites. In chapter 6, verse 27, the prophet is compared to a tester of metals. All those pictures are showing us what type of ministry the prophet had to accomplish. The majority of the prophecy on the book of Jeremiah indeed are doom, destruction. Jeremiah preaches against sin. He announces judgment. But here... Then there's a small part of his book at the end, the second part, where Jeremiah also builds and plants. So this twofold nature of his ministry later throughout the book will come back to the surface. Judgment and restoration. Those are our two themes here. With a greater emphasis, however, on judgment because it is a necessary judgment that, however, doesn't leave us hopeless. That ultimately there is a Messiah that will come to sacrifice himself and grant through a new covenant, which by the way is announced in this book in chapter 31 of Jeremiah. The obedience that the people of Israel could not achieve on their own, God will build back the destroyed temple, plant back his exiled people. Something, however, that can happen only after the previous unrepented order of things, which had gone too far, is disintegrated and removed first. And Jeremiah, must, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and other major prophets must answer the call by announcing such judgment first. And I want to say, like him, every servant of God has this priority. 
George Swinock says, a pastor must thunder in his doctrine. That despite our, our recitation, God calls us even before birth to a specific task. And in this case, Jeremiah was called to pronounce the coming judgment upon all the people. While we don't believe that prophets exist today, we call ourselves cessationists in that regard. We still, however, believe that Christians are called to engage, especially in, day, in days like today, in activities that are prophetic in nature. In the way that we point people back to Scripture. In the way that we address sin. In the way that we call people to repent. In, in the way we warn them, like John the Baptist, that every plant that the Heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Because it is the wicked that has to be uprooted. They have no place in the house of God. And so the, the prophetic aspect here is to tell people about this coming judgment. The preachers are supposed to have a burden to deliver to the generation of our own. And I'm sad to say such men are lacking in our generation. And I'll say that's the reason why we're in trouble. The pulpit is lacking. The trouble of a nation starts with the pulpit. You see, God's authority needs to be behind this. Not our own. His calling, not ours. Otherwise, we got no authority. Only self-promotion. And so, men of God must be warned. You will face opposition for, from the unpopular message that you will bring. But you must trust, like Jeremiah, in God's vindication over all against the unpopular message or lack of popularity in a rebel generation. I mean, Jeremiah had a hard task before him. Nobody likes to be uprooted. Nobody likes to move from place to place under persecution. No one likes harsh words of doom. And I'm sure even Jeremiah as a weeping prophet did not feel any delight in announcing the dreadful judgment. Yet he obeyed and he faced the many consequences for it, the persecution. Jeremiah will have many enemies that will try to stop his preaching. All kind of people will seek to go against him. Yet in all his coming trials, Jeremiah is called to keep in mind this first chapter where it all began. And, and it, it, it is all for us too. What matters is not how Jeremiah sees himself. Perhaps sometimes a failure. It doesn't matter how others see him as a religious nut and a crazy uh, fundamentalist. What matters is what, how God sees Jeremiah as a committed servant to the Lord. Called to do whatever the master called him to do. That God has given authority to him as a prophet to preach this truth. And so the truth must do the work. Jeremiah is simply called to obey. To go and tell the harsh message. Because evidently this is the kind of message that God's people needed to hear at this point in their backsliding history. And as we bring this text to today friends. We should get ready for such shaking. And shaking that I want to say is already a, a starting. You look around the state of our world. We hear wars, earthquakes, deeper and deeper immorality. Where is Jeremiah? Where are those kind of people that we should partner with? That want to fulfill this mission? Let's look now at Jeremiah's second quality. A quality that he doesn't have on his own. But that he gets from God. That God will grant Jeremiah power, might. God will be Jeremiah's strength. In the midst of all this persecution. God has to encourage the fearful Jeremiah here. Do not be afraid of their faces. Or their continents. There is all those who will seek to persecute him. For his prophecies of doom. God promises that he will be with him to deliver him. To protect him. In other words God will see Jeremiah through. God promises that despite persecution he will protect those who 
proclaim the truth. God will look after his prophets, says the Lord. This is an unchangeable decree from Yahweh. So fearful saint, rest in such truth and unchangeable promise. Verse 17 continues. Now the prophet is called to gird up his loins. To dress himself for action. That's something Israel, Israelite needed to do before battle. To have agency with your legs. You put the robe and gird them. And you arise, brace yourself and speak. Says the Lord to, to Jeremiah. All that I command you. And God also warns him, do not be dismayed. Do not be confounded or terrified or shattered or discouraged. Mostly in this case, what is in view is being in awe before someone else than God. Jeremiah must have only God as his fear. He must not be intimidated by his enemies. This is referring in particular to the Jewish king and the priest who will seek to persecute and dissuade Jeremiah from prophesying the truth of, of a coming judgment. Jeremiah, however, is to remain fearless. Otherwise, there's the opposite threat from the Lord. Lest I dismay you before them. Lest God causes panic and confusion and shattering. Uh, in other words, God will give him a good reason to be terrified of them. God will make Jeremiah even more afraid than whatever fears his enemies may already cause. If Jeremiah fails to deliver the prophecy or becomes trapped by the fear of men, God threatens that they will overcome Jeremiah and that God will bring Jeremiah down before his enemies. He will make himself a, a fool before them. If he pull punches, then God will pull him out of the lineup. There's something to say to the fact that at times, Jeremiah might have caved in into this only for a moment. The pressure and fell into cycles of depression. You read the book of Jeremiah is full of those moments. But verse 18 and 19, God promises that if Jeremiah obeys by being God's mouthpiece, then God will establish Jeremiah as a fortified city. A city that cannot be captured by the enemies. A pillar of iron, a wall of bronze. All these three pictures stand for something immovable and solid in the face of threat, in the face of challenge, in the face of persecution. I mean, you try even with your best military help you can find, back in the ancient world, to take an impregnable, fortified city up in the hill, defended from all sides. It's impossible. People are ready from the castle to boil, boil or boiled oil or arrows, or you try to break through a pillar of iron, like described here with cannonballs and steel didn't exist, or a wall of bronze, when again, the best available tool for warriors was bronze. It's simply impossible. And the reason being is that God protects his prophet. Then no one, including powerful kings, princes, priests, or people, will prevail in their treacheries against the prophet. Yes, they will try to fight against you, Jeremiah. They will persecute you. They will mock you. They will seek to make you stumble. They will do things and plot schemes in the secret. They will burn his prophecies to the fire. That's how much these self-professing Israelites hated God's word at the time, sadly. And... They will not prevail. They will not overcome. Jeremiah, in fact, despite all the opposition, will be one of the only ones safely spared the exile. The people that persecuted him will be killed and deported. Why? Because God says, I am with you to deliver you. To snatch the prophet away from the nets of the wicked. Rescuing him in the end. Even throughout the process, he will encounter painful resistance. But God grants his prophet the strength to resist. 
His presence and deliverance is all that Jeremiah needs to trust. If the Lord is with you and you proclaim his word faithfully, what else do we need to fear, friends? Who can separate us from the love of God we have in Christ Jesus? John Calvin said this, Seeing that a pilot steers the ship in which we sail, who will never allow us to perish even in the midst of shipwrecks, there is no reason why our minds should be overwhelmed with fear and overcome with weariness. That despite the opposition we might face, God promises to protect us until the end of our task. If we fail, faithfully fulfills it, however. If we fearlessly proclaim the truth. You see, fear can be a trap for all of us. Fear of rejection, opposition, that then leads to all kinds of doubts and hindrances to our effectiveness in serving God, by the way. The marvelous comfort in this prophet's call, I want to say, is the promise of God toward those who answer the call. That if God calls you to a difficult task, He also can call you to rely on the strength of God through that task. And it is my job and your job to speak God's word to even a rebellious people, just as it was for Jeremiah. Yes, we will face opposition, but we have a promise attached to such service that God will rescue and deliver those who are His obedient servants. Remember where the Bible is headed here. The day will come when Israel will be delivered by the righteous branch, the Messiah. For us who come centuries later, God has granted us protection by sending His Son to die for us and granting us the unattackable, unattackable assurance of eternal life. Think about it. If you're in Christ, you've got nothing to fear now. Christ says, behold, I am with you until the end of this age. God's abiding protection shall suffice no matter how dark and how many attacks we face. This should give us confidence to speak the truth no matter what. And even if people reject us, we don't take it personally. People who fight against us are actually fighting against God and the truth that we proclaim. No matter the trials, friends, no matter the obstacles, God will help us in every aspect of our work. And see also that there is an expiration date of these trials and the opposition of the world to the righteous. You have an eternal weight of glory, friends, that outweighs even the light momentary afflictions that we face now. If you're God's mouthpiece and trust that God will take care of the rest, that's all that you need. Now, just because God promises to protect Jeremiah, doesn't mean that the prophet is spared from affliction or humiliation, times of doubts, weakness, and depression. It will come. You just read the entire, you just read the entire book of Jeremiah all the way through, and you realize how uneasy it was for him. But in light of that challenge, there's a certain persecution that comes with this prophetic call. And the danger is to become afraid. People will not like your message. You face difficulties, or like Jeremiah, even beatings, imprisonment. We saw in our last movie night, uh, night that we had a few Fridays ago, uh, pastors are already going to jail in North America, which this was unthinkable, okay? But it starts even when people greet you nicely, only to be plotting and scheming behind the back, slandering. And uh, being betrayed all the way to open rejection shamelessly. Are we really ready to face all that? And the risk for the prophet is to either get discouraged or worse, concede to the pressure. Make exception. That's why before anyone intends to, to undertake answering the call, you, you must 
pledge your heart to heaven. To be open like Jeremiah, to sacrifice everything for it. You answer the call and say, I want to speak the truth regardless of the negative response from a culture that considers the word of God offensive. Especially for a preacher, but I mean, preachers are supposed to fear God and not man. Willing to face whatever snare man may lay before because they, they hate the message. But even for anyone, this is a call to faithfulness, Christian faithfulness. We must beware of joining the enemy through compromise, through sharing the same judgment. And, and this is the promise for it. Whatever human obstacle to fill, fulfill the task, it will not suffice if the Creator sustain you. God promises here survival to Jeremiah. If God is on your side, you have nothing to fear. Fear rather than the one that can cast both of you and your body into hell. Let's look at now the content of Jeremiah's message briefly. Verse 11 to 16. And there's two images there. The almond tree and the boiling pot. Both of them are pointing to this, the content of the message of Jeremiah. That judgment is about to come. God uses two images. What do you see, Jeremiah? Verse 11. There's two visions or dreams that he's seeing, a symbol of what God is about to enact, symbol for the prophecy, and we'll start off the entire book. The, the branch of the almond tree, which is now early in bloom. The almond tree is usually in the Mediterranean, by the way, even in Italy, is the first tree to blossom as early as January and February. So you have spring in, in March. Well, this one, long before other trees. And the meaning here that is... That is the picture of God's threat of doom soon to come to pass. God will perform His word. And it's also a plain word that we cannot translate because actually in Hebrew, almond and watching are sounds like the same. The, problem is, the point is this, that the prophecy of doom is not just another fanatic dream about who knows when. Now this is, will surely be carried out. God is punctual. Judgment will come. You watch and see, Jeremiah. The opportune time is about to come. God is watching over its fulfillment. He's ready to bring His word to pass. And the second image here is of a pot boiling and facing toward the north. This pot boiling out of the, ba the basket. These two images stand for the certainty of this northern invasion all the way to Jerusalem from Babylon, all the way to the southern kingdom, including Jerusalem, as judgment for his Judah's sin. That God will judge, why? Idolatry. And we begin this today, but we'll continue next time. But God will judge idolaters, Judas, through invaders from the north. The sin that is singled out here is idolatry. At this point, the Lord unveils the realities of this judgment. And this, the, the reality is a, a calamity or a disaster out of the north that will break forth all the inhabitants of the promised land. This will be terrifying. That God will summon all the kings of the north to sit on their throne at the gates of Jerusalem. This was in, uh, unimaginable back then. Yet it was true. A sure invasion is coming. Jerusalem will be sieged. At the time Jeremiah receives this call and the later prophecies, it felt unthinkable. But it was true. God will pass this final sentence as the result of their sin. Verse 16. God will judge their wickedness. They have forsaken God. They burn incense to other gods and the work of their hands. This sin of idolatry, we'll, we'll deal with that next time. But it was so pervasive that the judgment needed to be pervasive. As much as the sin was. 
And just so you know, anything we worship above God, anything we place above God is idolatry, which we got plenty of share in the same sin in this nation. So despite how unthinkable it may sound, it's like the dull hearers of Jeremiah said, and this is never going to happen. God will surely bring to pass His judgment on idolatrous nations through even worse. The plot is about to boil over, friends. The prophecy will blossom. Some say today, well, perhaps God is delaying His judgment. Perhaps He has forgotten all about our sins. And as a nation, you start to hear a view of embracing some sort of view of God as, as a God is comfortable with sin. Nothing shall befall us. Friends, not so here. God tells Jeremiah, at least he will listen. Sadly, the people won't. The disaster is coming. And therefore, everyone must repent if this is to be averted. The, the most troubling sin that we see here is, again, idolatry, flagrant idolatry. <sighs> Professing believers openly betraying the Lord through idolatry, putting God behind their back. This is ungrateful folly, outrageous in the eyes of God. Proper worship matters to God. And we'll continue on this theme next time. But the number one sin God is mad with here and last time in Isaiah was exactly that, idolatry. And a nation that has forsaken God can only expect curses. Uh, I was thinking about this uh, town in the history of the church. It's called Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul. And it was a flourishing Christian town. Of, and the early church at least. But it was full of idolatry. And then it came to the point that in 1400 it was completely invaded by Muslim. And since then it's completely Muslim. And there's no Christian witness. Like zero 0.1% of Christians. Nations can be really abandoned. Like the unthinkable can happen. The scene with the first chapter of Jeremiah is this. Here we have a young, inexperienced, small town boy from an insignificant tribe and a little more than exposure to the religious life. Uh, but that, 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 that nation looks corrupted. He's a, a lonely and fearful and reluctant man in, in the face of a backsliding nation. Yet God chose him. Friends, all that it takes is one man. Just one man. Known by God. Used by God to fearlessly proclaim the uncomfortable truth. That unless we repent, judgment is coming. This is a message even unpleasant. That we must deliver even if it leads to having enemies. Even when it leads to beatings. Jail or facing all sorts of plots. All the way to be... Think about Jeremiah. He's dumped in the well and sinks in the mud. However discouraging this was for him. The strength to Jeremiah and all of us is that God, before He formed us in the womb, He knew us. He appointed us to this. That we fulfill our Master's task and realize that we are not rejecting, we are not rejecting Him. People are rejecting God when they reject the message. Luke 10 verse 16, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So friends, we must trust that God's sovereign purpose stands, cannot be thwarted, no matter the opponent. Even if we face persecution, God will ultimately deliver us if we faithfully fulfill His task. God can make even the weakest man invincible if we obediently obey the divine call. And by calling people to repent, that's how we fulfill the call. By Fulfilling our specific callings. No matter who we are and whatever we must face, even the strongest assault, we must not, however, fall the trap of fearing men. 
Sadly, Jeremiah ministers in a time not different than our own. The world we live is full of unrepented idolatry. Our nation has forsaken the God it once worshipped and honored. That is a sad reality. And it is collapsing at the speed of light into deeper and deeper abyss. And so we are constantly, we, we hear of invasions and wars we thought unimaginable years ago. And we see God's judgment already on the move. Not from the north, from all the corners of the earth. So who will warn against, uh, against the church? Who will wake the church up? That is the prophet call. Who will go and tell all these people? They keep on hearing and don't understand. Who will be a watchman in Zion? Who will keep blood from his hands? Let us pray.